this fall. We're going to talk about a series we're calling God's Story and Your Story, How His Changes Yours. And Kevin DeYoung is a guy, if you were around um, Christmas of this summer, for Summer RUF, Kevin DeYoung is the guy who wrote that book, Just Do Something. And he says this about what a story is, because we're going to use this word story a lot. It basically means your life. But Kevin DeYoung says this, everyone lives according to a story. Everyone has some meta narrative, some story that seeks to make sense of everything in their life. He says you can't avoid living by a story. You can't avoid trying to explain life because we don't experience life directly. We experience it through our interpretation of what's happening. This is why the questions, why is this happening? What's going on? Where's God? Those are the questions human beings ask. We're interpreters. And so uh, we, we, we turn to stories to tell us what's happening, who we are, where we are. And so this fall, we're going we're gonna to focus on, could it be that there's an author of the story who gives us the accurate interpretation of reality from beginning to end? And could it be that he actually cares enough about our lives to laser guide it to the kind of experiences we go through in our life? And so that's what we're going to talk about, God's story, our story, and how his changes ours. Um, and if you look at your little blue outline, that's the outline for tonight. Simple enough, right? Uh, point one, your story, your life is an open book to God. Point two, God's story, he has opened his life as an open book to you. And point three, his story changes yours, it trumps yours. Uh, only Jesus can change the psalm I'm about to read uh, from, a, from a crippling threat, really, if we think about it, to a liberating uh, joy. And so let me read this lengthy psalm and... Uh, it's probably something you're very familiar with. If you've ever gotten a birthday card in your life, this has probably appeared in it somewhere at some point. Um, and you're, uh, it's pretty famous. So let me read this to you. We'll pray and we will get busy. Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, before, behind, you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, it's high, I can't attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from before your face? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths or Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall hold me, shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be this night, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night's as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I'm extraordinarily set apart. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. I wasn't hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven uh, in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast the sum of them If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. 
They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of a life everlasting. Let's pray. Jesus, we are like children who hear a lot of voices. But when we hear our mother's voice or our father's voice, we immediately know whose it is. And it puts us at ease. You say your sheep know your voice. And you say that you know your sheep. And so tonight, would you let us hear your voice? Would it stand out amongst all the other noise going through our head and our hearts and our lives right now? Would you come, would you show yourself as you are, which is astoundingly beautiful and for us? We ask this in your name. Amen. About this time of year, a group called the American Sociological Survey uh, does a survey of Americans. It's a huge survey. They poll a ton of people. And what they've been finding over the past 30 years or so is that Americans are reporting less and less confidants or people that they can kind of be themselves around, tell anything to, like a best friend, someone who you have an intimate relationship with. So over the years, about 30 years ago, the average for an American of how many confidants or best friends they had was between like four and five back in the, I guess, in the 80s or so. Uh, Today, that's down to like between one and two. And so most Americans today say, who can I talk to? Who can I tell anything? Who, Who would be there for me in any situation? They would say there's one person or maybe there's two people. And they also um, found out something I find fascinating. They, uh, the, the results of their survey came back, and statistically, based on how people self-report, the two loneliest groups of people in America uh, on this survey are, any guesses, nursing home residents and college students living in the dorms. So you have nursing home residents and freshmen living in the dorms are the two uh, statistically loneliest people in America. That may seem obvious to you. It makes sense for the elderly folks to be lonely if their family's not visiting or something. But the college kids, that doesn't, it, it, that doesn't make much sense to me. Here's why. Both with the nursing home people and the, with the college students in the dorm, it's literally one of the only times in your life where you are with people all day long. You eat three meals with all these people. You sleep on a hall with 20 or 30 of them. You go to class with them. You're in a similar life stage. You understand each other. You have similar hobbies, similar struggles. So why are these two groups that have so much in common saying, I am painfully lonely when I'm surrounded by people? Why did you think that your freshman year? I certainly felt that. I think part of the reason why is... Freshman year in particular, or your first couple of years of college, you're surrounded by people that know pieces of your story. They know data about you. They know facts about you, your hometown, your major, what you want to do after graduation, uh, what some of your hobbies or your sports are. They know data about you. They don't know how the data fits together. They don't know how the pieces of your story flow into one another and tell a story. And so uh, think about who your closest friends are. As you kind of progress through college and you've been around people long enough where they don't just know data about you, they know you. And you feel known by them because they know how the pieces in your life fit together. For instance, 
What a fact? A fact is my parents got divorced two summers ago. That's a fact. A story is two summers ago my world fell apart. It was the hardest time of my life and nothing's been the same since. I've lost my bearings. That's a story. Which would you feel known by? The person who knows that or the person who knows that your parents split up two years ago? Or the fact I'm an engineering major? That's a fact. You still don't know much about the person. What about my grandfather was an engineer, my father was an engineer, and ever since I've been a little kid, I love to take things apart and put them back together, and so I want to be an engineer. It's my passion. It's my life. That's a story. So a friend is someone who knows how the pieces fit together. An acquaintance is someone who knows the pieces. And unfortunately, your freshman year, you're, you're just surrounded by a ton of people who were all primed to ask questions about the data of your life. So the question is this. What about when it comes to God? Is he a person for you who knows the facts of your life, who knows the data, the pieces of your story, but doesn't really know you? Or you feel like he doesn't really know you? Yeah, he's omniscient. Yeah, he knows everything. I get that. But I don't feel known by him. So, yeah, he could fill out a, he could write an essay about Ben Coppage and he can say, blah, 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 blah. He's from here. He did this. He got married then. He struggles with this stuff. But I don't feel known and understood to my depths by that. Is that how you think about God in terms of whether he's an acquaintance or a friend? And if so, perhaps our prayer lives sound like this. Perhaps our prayer lives are more like trying to get the attention of a God we're pretty sure is uninterested in our lives. Pretty convinced. Uh, it's like the little bell at the hotel uh, lobby thing, ring for service. You're like, he's not here, but if I ring this thing loud enough, he'll eventually show up and give me what I want or give me what I need. I think a lot of time our prayer lives reveal whether the God we say we love and the God we say we follow, whether he's a mere acquaintance who knows data about our lives and has to be informed, or whether he is that deep, true friend that we sang about in, uh, in the song a second ago, that deep, true friend who gets you to your core, gets how you fit together, gets how all the pieces and the stories and the events, the pains, the sorrows, the joys, the passions, the hopes, how they all flow in together to one another. Uh, the other day, I was talking to Eric Reed. This is not a big personal revelation, Eric. Uh, I was talking to Eric. I asked him, what's it like to write a song? Because writing sermons can be very hard. And I'm like, is writing songs hard too? And he said, the pieces, if I, get, if I heard you right, you said the pieces came quickly, like the little, the stanzas of the lines or the way to phrase something, they come quickly. But what takes the long time is for those pieces to meld together, to become a song. So for lines and stanzas and choruses to actually become music. And Miles and I were talking the other week, and uh, I was asking him about engineering stuff. And engineering is not just understanding the component pieces of a device or a structure. It's not enough to know that's a pillar, that's a crossbeam, that's a roadbed, that's a drainage area. You don't know anything. You can't help anybody with that kind of knowledge. You don't know anything about engineering at that point. But when you know how those pieces fit together, how they flow together, and you know kind of the story of how a bridge works, you're an engineer. That's how this stuff works. And so it's the same with God. And Psalm 139 is all about this. Uh, to use Eric's metaphor, when you think about... When you think about the God of the Bible, perhaps you were raised in a way where your parents or your church or whatever thought it was very important that you get the data down correctly. 
And so you spend all your time doing that, and, and your relationship with God is now reduced to knowing facts about him the way a historian knows facts about Abe Lincoln but doesn't know Abe Lincoln from anybody else. And so our prayer lives become like what I said earlier. And it's kind of like this. You've been told, rightly, that your relationship with God should feel like you're sitting in the audience at a symphony and being whisked away by the beauty of this massive concert of talented, uh, talented musicians. And you're, just, you're transported to another place because of how beautiful all these little pieces coming together are. But... Because you don't know how the pieces of his story fit together, how the pieces of your own life fit together, it sounds like noise to you. It sounds like when all those musicians, before they start, the one violin is there going through the chords, the one trumpet. You know, it's a cacophony of noise. And so perhaps you've, been, you've, you've thought you're, you're walking through the Christian life, you're walking in relationship with God, but you're like, this does not sound like music to me. And it's either turned you into a cynic or it's turned you into someone who's learned to settle for a, for a scale or an octave set when you, were made to, to, when you were made to love and to come alive in the symphony. And so that's, that's where a lot of us do life. A lot of us, probably everyone in the room, at some level or another, that's where we do life. And that's why God has taken something that was first David's experience, King David, and he's recorded in Scripture as an invitation to us to say, what about you? When you think about the God of the Bible, when you think about the God we just read about, do you hear noise when you think about his story? Do you hear noise or do you hear music? Does it affect you? Does it move you? Does it take you somewhere? Or does it make you want to get out of the building? Because you know enough to know that's not music. It just sounds like people tuning up. What is it with us? Psalm 139, like I said, is written not to people with blank slate hearts where God is like, oh, great, a white piece of paper. Now I can download correct theology onto it. That's not the way the Bible works. The Bible was given after the fall, and so it's only written to wayward, broken, blind people. And so when God gives us this psalm, he's giving it to people who already listen to a lot of other stuff, people who are very familiar with noise, and he's, silent, he's, he's whispering a better song above that. The symphony's starting to crank up, and he's starting to transport us somewhere. Here's what the music sounds like. Or here's what noise sounds like, actually. We'll start there. Here's what noise sounds like. <laughs> God is distant. Sounds like an anti-Psalm 139. If I go to the heavens, you're there. But if I go to the depths, you're not there. This God doesn't get me. He doesn't understand my thoughts. I'm so confused. He's more confused about me. I don't know where I am. He doesn't know where I am. What else? You can go through the psalm. You can reverse everything. And all of us are very familiar with this kind of stuff. Where shall I go from his spirit? I got an idea. I can run this way and he won't be there. Because I have all these stories of times where I didn't feel like God was there. That's noise we're, ver- we're all very familiar with. Surely the darkness shall cover me. If I shut my door, God won't see what I'm doing. My roommates won't see what I'm doing. If I keep those silent thoughts inside my head, God doesn't know. Other people don't know. This is our lives, guys. This is the noise we're all used to. And God knows it. And so if he knows you, if he knows this is my heart, don't you think his words would be calibrated to meet you in that kind of place? He's not a God who shouts at you until you get in line. He's a God who meets you where you are with words that are custom calibrated to meet you where you are. And we're people familiar with noise. And so for people who are, who, whose worst fear is God is distant, he is AWOL, he is nowhere to be found in my story right now. David says, verse 7 and verse 9, 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from before your face? If I take, take the wings of the morning and dwell in the other most parts of the seat, even there, this place of chaos, this place of darkness and death, your hand will lead me, your hand shall hold me. What if your deepest fear right now is God is unfamiliar? He's disinterested with you. You're not exciting enough to warrant his attention. You don't merit his eyes turning towards you or his thoughts. Well, for that, David says, verse 1 through 4, O Lord, you have searched me, you know me. You know when I sit down, rise up. You discern my thoughts from far. You finish my sentences. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. You know me exhaustively. What about your fear is he's only present in the mountaintops? David says, if I go to the heavens, you're there. And if I go to Sheol, the place of death, the place of shame, the place of being stuck, the place of hopelessness. Behold, O Lord, you are there. That's what he's saying. Here's another thing. It's not just that God is there in the hard places or the hopeless places of our lives. He is there in a deeply intimate, personal way. Don't think, when you hear the word God is uh, omnipresent or omniscient, have you heard those words before? It, it's, like, it's a fancy word for saying he's everywhere. Most people kind of grow up with a category of this, but we tend to think of that like God is everywhere like oxygen molecules are everywhere. He's some like vaporous thing that's just, he's, in, he's everywhere at all times. That's not what David is saying. That's not what the Bible says. Here's what he, here's what he says in verse 7, if you look at this. Um, he says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee? Uh, a lot of translations will say from your presence. Uh, the Hebrew word there is actually literally, where shall I flee from before your face? And that's a phrase that comes up throughout the Bible. Before your face, before your face. Personal. You see someone's face, you know the person. That's the essence of who they are. And David is saying in all of these places, it's not just that God's present in some generic vaporous way like oxygen's there. His face is there. Turn towards you. All the places, run through the litany of places David goes through. Run through the litany of places in your life where you're bumping into walls and saying, is God here? He's not there in a generic sense. He's there with his face. Intimate presence with you. Intimate presence for you. If you're his people. We'll talk about that in a second. This is the personal God. If I go to the heavens, he's there. If I go to the depths, he is also there. And guess what? For David, this isn't a suffocating thought. We'll also talk, we'll finish with this. But for David, it's not like, oh my gosh. Like people complain about the NSA with all this wiretapping and stuff. Like he's always watching. I'm always on camera. He always knows what I'm doing. This is joyful for David. This is the best news the guy's heard. Everywhere I go, there is my father with his face turned towards me. I've never hit a place where I haven't smelled his presence. That's a good thing for David. He's not trying to get away and saying, where can I go? He's saying, where can I go where you're not there? That's what he's saying. Quick aside before we push on, what decisions are you neck deep in right now? You're wondering, where the heck is God? Where am I? Where's he going to be after this decision? Will he go with me this way? Or if I go that way, will he only go with me this way? Where is God? What is he like? The sufferings we're going through, the confusions we're going through. Do you hear music when you think about your God with you in that place, or do you hear noise? That's point one. Our, our life, 
our story is an open book before God. We'll come back to this in a little bit and bring it full circle. But does this make a difference to you? That your story is known because you didn't write your story. I didn't write my story. We're not the authors. We're Romeo. God is Shakespeare. He knows you exhaustively the way Shakespeare knows Romeo exhaustively because Shakespeare invented Romeo. He wrote every line. He pulled that story in every different direction. That's the way it is with God and us. Point two is this. It's not just that our stories are an open book before God. The God of the Bible has opened up his life before us as an open book. Literally, but also figuratively. You ever take the Bible for granted the way I do? Maybe it's once every few years where I'm consciously thankful that God chose to ever say a word. Because he didn't have to. Never obligated to say anything. Uh, this, this, this book began with us giving him the finger and running the other way, wandering towards siren songs, convinced that was life, even though we crashed the ship right afterwards. He didn't ever have to say a word, but he said a word. Adam, where are you? And he begins to speak forever to put us back on the map and to come chase us down and to come get us. But do you, are we aware that, uh, that how gracious it is, just the fact that he opened his mouth that he ever spoke to begin with, So what's the plot line of the story? If he did speak, if he did give us uh, scripture, what's the plot line of the story? Here is the crux of it. Um, If you look at verse 14, uh, this is the plot line of the story. David says, uh, and this is a place where I put it in brackets, I'll explain that. He says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the way we, that's like the hallmark verse. And that's that's a, a, a verse that comes up a lot in the abortion debate for good reason. This stuff does have implications for that, but that's not the primary point. David is, he's not saying, in my gross anatomy class, I look at how my tendons work and are connected to my bones, and I'm just awash in marvel. That's true. We would do that. But what he's saying is this. I praise you, for I'm amazingly, extraordinarily set apart. That's covenant language. That word doesn't make sense to you. That means you're normal. Um, And we'll unpack that throughout the semester, but... That's covenant language. This is language that shows up throughout the Bible when he says, I'm amazingly set apart. God has put special attention on me. Not generic like at Mardi Gras where you throw out beads and whoever catches it, catches it. Specific, laser-guided, for you, shaped like you, for where you are kind of mercy. I praise you for I am extraordinarily, amazingly set apart. That's what David is heaping praise on God for. And like I said, this is the covenant. God saying, I will be your God, and you will be my people. You will be my son, and I will love you. That's the covenant. Uh, and remember where we started earlier. Like, we were talking about friends versus acquaintances. Friends who know the pieces and how they fit together versus acquaintances who just know the pieces. This covenant, these promises to God, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will love you. And I will pursue you forever. That's the glue. That's what brings all the pieces of your life together. That's the thread that ties all of those weird places you don't know what to make sense of, all the random things that happen, all the horrible things that have happened in your past. They're all tied together with this bright little silk thread called the covenant, God's promises to you. And that's the lowest common denominator of everything that's happened in your life. And everything that's happening now is that. That's what's the glue that's holding it all together. And we sang about it earlier. 
a love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in you. Here's what a covenant is. For those of you who like climbing, the covenant is the harness that holds you to the wall. It's the rope that holds you to the wall. The Christian life is not how hard you can grip the rope and hold on. The Christian life is that harness has you. The Christian life, before it's ever about how strong your arms are to grip onto a rope, it's how strong God's arms are to grip you. And he doesn't drop people. That's good news. Bad news is you better beef up your forearms to hold on tight because if you fall, you're screwed. That's bad news. That's religion. That's what all the other religions are about. How tight you hold on. The gospel is God has his grip on you and he doesn't let his people fall. And David sees that kind of God with the stuff of his life under his fingernails. He smells himself on that God because he's, he's so hands-on with where David is and what he's going through. We, you look back at your life, whatever age you're at, whatever year you are, you look back at your life, some of you have hard, 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 hard stories. Horrible things have happened to you. Things that can make you break down just by your mind going there. Some of us have not suffered terribly much but still know that life is hard. But when we try to explain these kind of things, when you look back over the course of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, when I look at my life, why does faith often seem so hard to come by? Why does it seem like it would be a miracle just to have a mustard seed's worth? Why depression? Why such discouragement so frequently? Why such selfishness, even though it brings chaos into my relationships? Why those things? Again, I'm either going to make sense of that according to some other story that's going to lead me away from the living God and away from life, or God's story makes sense of all of that. It puts me on the map. And then through all of that, where does hope come from? The fact that during that horrible thing that happened to you, does hope come from God was AWOL there? He was absent. He was aloof. He was clumsy. He couldn't get there in time. Or does it come from knowing He was there. I have no idea what he was up to, but I do know he was for me. I do know he was with me. I do know he was good. What's David's life like? Do you know what David's life was like? (laughs) Was that an easy life? Oh, yeah, he's the king. He's got the palace. He's got all the riches. Yes. He also had people trying to murder him most of his life. Uh, He also had one of the most humiliating public relations disasters and spiritual relations disasters when he slept with Bathsheba and got a guy killed over it. Um, In this passage, look at verses 18 to 22. What do you think life was like for him when these bloodthirsty men were after God's anointed, undermining him, slandering him, raising up a mutiny? Was this an easy life? Is this a naive guy who's writing a Hallmark card about a sweet God? Or is this a guy in the trenches with scars who can afford to say things like this? Question, and we'll push on. When you look back at your life, all of those different details, the twists, the turns, do you see the master conductor bringing those little pieces together, that little trumpet over there, that weird-sounding instrument over there that you never knew what to do with, all the other pieces, do you see him brilliantly bringing all the pieces together to create music? Have you begun to see how he brings good from all of that? Have you begun to see how how his promises to you in Jesus actually are the lowest common denominator of everything you've ever tasted in life? Is his presence with you and his presence for you? What's the chorus to this symphony? 
I'll let you do this on your own for a little homework. Go read the second half of every verse in this psalm. Every, the second half of every psalm, it's like, you're there, you're there, you're there, you're there, you're there. You know me, you know me, you know me, you know me, you know me. That's what the chorus of the covenant sounds. A God face to face with his people. We read this earlier in Ephesians. How's he bring music out of it? He's bringing music out of it because he's bringing everything together in Jesus. Uh, he's, he, before time began, before our stories began, God is already busy at work, writing them towards life in Jesus, pulling them towards Jesus. He's more committed to our freedom than we will ever be committed to our freedom, and that's a good thing. Last point. How in the world do we end a sermon like this with a comment like this? Only Jesus can change this psalm from being a crippling threat to a liberating joy. Crippling threat? But that sounded so positive and so encouraging. How's it a crippling threat? Look at how David begins and ends the psalm. Read that, knowing what kind of heart you and I have, what kind of lives we've lived, what kind of track records we've accrued. This is like A-Rod asking Major League Baseball to do another test. Or Lance Armstrong calling back in the authorities and saying, I think you missed some blood samples, try these two. Or a corrupt politician saying, come check my books again. Search me and know my heart. Not know my public life, know my heart. And see, audit me, if there's any offensive way in me. How do you ever get to sing a song like that to a God who is as fair and as holy and just as we want him to be? But to us as well. How do you ever get to sing a song like this without it being a lie? How can you afford to sing a song like this? How do you have the money in your account to be able to do something like this? Or do you just leave out those lines and sing the rest of it? Here's how we do that. Jesus, uh, for all of the Psalms, Jesus is the true Psalm singer. No matter whatever Psalm you're reading, whatever Psalm you come across, Jesus is the one who sang it and meant it perfectly. And so when Jesus sings this song, he's singing to his beloved Father, Oh, how vast are your thoughts for me. How I love you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh Father. I go to the heights, I go to the depths, and behold, you, Father, are there. Oh, how marvelously I've been set apart with your special love. And he sings the part about the enemies too. So our hearts are full of that kind of stuff in 18 to 22. God hates wickedness. He hates evil. He hates the wicked. The Bible says it repeatedly. So how do the wicked ever end up being able to sing a song like this? Here's how. We end with this and then soccer and then we're done. How do, we, how do we sing it? Well, Jesus took another song and gave us this song. Psalm 22. Are you familiar with that one? Let me read you a little bit of that. This is the song Jesus sang so that you and I could sing Psalm 139. You're familiar with this one too. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far, so far, so far from saving me? So deaf. To my cries of anguish. I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man, 
scorned by everyone, despised by the people, and all who see me mock me. They hurl insights, shaking their little heads, saying, He trusts in Yahweh. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I'm poured out like water. They have pierced my hands and feet. A pack of villains encircles me. All my bones are on display. The people stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my clothes. How is that for a song? Jesus sings song, Psalm 22 so that you can sing Psalm 139. It's a trade. And that's the only way people can ever say to a holy and just God, who is the God of love and the God who's everywhere, search me and know me, see if there's any offensive way in me. God is no longer a threat to you because you've been made at peace with him. And now that opens up the way of face-to-face, deep intimacy, no matter what kind of place you stumble into. Through suffering, through foolishness, through bad decisions, through good decisions that blew up afterwards. That's how you get to have that kind of relationship with God is because Jesus sang another song so that you and I could sing this one. I said we'll close with soccer. I'll be true to my promise. I was at the World Cup. I don't know when it was, maybe 1994 in Orlando, Florida. And we were there for like Netherlands, Ireland or something like that. And if you've ever been to a big soccer game or a World Cup game, those guys have songs. And once their team scores... They go bananas. Like, Americans don't do this. This is like European soccer hooligans. And, you know, Netherlands scored on Ireland, and the place, like, about came down. And they start singing all these songs that they have. I don't, couldn't understand the word of it, but it sounds like the um, gold member in Austin Powers. I didn't catch any of it. But he's like, they're singing this weird Dutch song. And every time they score, cue up the chorus. The song comes on again. How do those people distant in the nosebleed seats in the, in the seats, how did they get to sing and join in the celebration on the field? How foolish would it be if they started singing their celebration songs when nothing happened on the field? They'd be insane. They'd be looked at. They'd be tossed out. doesn't make sense. They can't afford to sing it. But when the Netherlands scored, they went berserk because they were united and connected to the action on the field. You get to sing this song if you are connected to Jesus, to his performance. This is your song. And if you're not connected to Jesus and his performance, you don't get to sing this song, but guess what? You're here hearing a sermon right now. Who put all of your days in a book before it even came to be? Tonight is part of this song too. And so Jesus holds out Psalm 139 and says, sing this with me. I sing another song so that you can sing it. Uh, This is God's story and our story and how his changes ours. So let's pray and uh, we will continue this story throughout the semester. Oh, how we rejoice, Father, that our tragedies, our, our tragic stories, our decisions, our track records don't get the last say over our lives but you get the last say and the last say that you have over our lives is the song that we just sang we pray that we would see music when we look at our lives like David saw music we pray that you would deliver us from the noise that we hear um, that we would rejoice and sing with you as you sing over us so do this for your sake make us alive in Jesus that we can celebrate with what he's done on the field 
We ask this in your name. Amen.